The following is sponsored by Reformation Heritage Books, online at heritagebooks.org. Learn more at the conclusion of today's podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Among other things, the question is, what is this correspondence that is lacking to Adam? And in particular, what's lacking to Adam is the ability to, as a living thing, participate in generativity. Hello, and welcome to Theology on the Go. My name is Jonathan Master. I am joined here, as always, virtually by my good friend, James Dolezal. James, how are you? I'm doing well, Jonathan. This was once not virtual, but then each of us took jobs and I know. space came between us. I so. miss those days, but it's good to see you on the screen and to have a chance to talk with you about an issue that is certainly in the news and an issue that has touched a lot of people's lives personally. And what we want to discuss today is, just briefly, is the topic of transgenderism. And I want to say a few things at the outset before we get this conversation started, James. The first thing I want to say is that because of the nature of my work, I'm traveling to churches quite a bit. And I would say in the majority of churches to which I travel, I have a conversation along the way sometime after the service with someone whose family has been touched in by this explosion of transgenderism in this whole conversation. So either they'll say, my granddaughter uh, is talking about being a boy or, or something like that. I mean, it's not every church, but it's more than I think maybe our listeners would expect. So that's the first thing I want to say, that this is, this is a fairly pervasive issue on a lot of people's minds. The second thing I would say, though, is this. And this is important just to frame the conversation. We're not going to be able to in 15 minutes. James might be able to. I, I, I know I will not be able to. And I don't think that either of us will in 15 minutes to be able to cover this fully in all of its um, scientific dimensions and pastoral dimensions. Um, but we want to we dip our toe in the water, so to speak, and talk a little bit about what's going on here and what the Bible has to say about these things and, and what theological fence posts we need to keep in place uh, in order to sort of navigate our way through it. Because a lot of the people that I speak to are just bewildered. This was an issue that they never even had categories to consider in the past. And now they're trying to confront it, you know, as they're move it as it's moving a hundred miles an hour down the highway, so to speak. And so we want to try to at least give some of those um, theological uh, guardrails or guideposts in these few minutes that we have. James, is that is that an appropriate way to introduce this? Yeah, these are, I think the way we should think of this is just as sort of initial theological observations, not that you and I haven't thought about this more than what we can say in 15 minutes, but that these are some initial theological observations that we don't intend to dissect uh, the whole phenomena of gender dysphoria or something like that from a scientific perspective, but simply say theologians too have something to say about the human condition. Maybe in the mix are a few common sense observations that can be made along the way as well that are hopefully informed by both uh, the truth of nature and the truth of scripture. Um, So that's, I'd want to frame it like that. 
so as not to overpromise. That's right. That's right. So let me start with this. One of the things that I always say to my theology students, particularly if we're doing a kind of introduction to theology, is that you can learn almost everything you need to know about a religious systems or philosophical systems anthropology, their their understanding of men. You can you can learn almost everything you need to know by looking at what they say about the creation of man and about the the end, the 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 telos, the where do we end up for eternity? And certainly the Bible speaks with great clarity on both of those issues, on the creation of man and on the end for which we're created and the end to which we are being directed by God in redemption. And so, first of all, would you agree with that framing? And then and then second of all, how does the scripture in brief unpack those two issues, the beginning and the end? Philosophically, I would say the whence and the whither to. And theologically, I would say protology and eschatology, which are are really effectively the two ways of saying the same thing. Um, From from whence humans, and then at the same time, even Mm -hmm. sexual difference um, and and the being male or being female condition itself, we need to talk about the origins of that to really kind of to really determine in investigating the origins of it, whether this is something that is, this is a reality given to which we must conform or whether this is an accident that is really free uh, for us to decide, is this really something in which our own um, desires or inclinations uh, simply rule and our will kind of comes into conformity with it, or is this a given uh, or is this a given state of reality to which we need to conform our minds and our right. actions? I mean, so the origin question is going to get to, I mean, the question of like a haircut, for instance, is if, if we could say, you know, why do you have this haircut? Well, there's a certain free, free, like you have a different haircut than I do um, because I have a lot less hair than you do. And so there's a haircut that I'm free to have um, that is somewhat socially constructed, and I'm free to kind of fit in socially with a certain kind of haircut. And yet, there's not, there's nothing. You know, God didn't say, uh, God didn't make us with this haircut, and therefore we need to conduct ourselves accordingly. There's some free, you know, even there, even there, I suppose there are grooming questions. If if your grooming begins to intentionally misrepresent certain givens like your gender, then you need to groom yourself in a way that signals male or signals female. But my point is there are certain free play in the ways we present ourselves. And then there are other ways in which we present ourselves in which there isn't free play. We need to conform ourselves to a reality given to us. And in particular, we would say that the Bible is clear that there is male, female, and that that is, that is the nature of humanity. It's actually the nature of many, many species, but it's the nature, it's the nature of human beings. And, and so that is something that is not just about, um, well, that we ourselves have to conform to. That is, that is a, that is a given fixed reality and you can like that or not like it or wish it were something to, but it is. Yeah. And we can ask why it was given that way. And I think even there, the text of scripture enables us to make certain, uh, draw certain conclusions on the purpose of sexual alterity of male and female, 
Um, because obviously there are there are um, asex there are beings that are asexual that can re- living things that can reproduce in an asexual manner of um, cell division that kind of thing. Um, and the text in I'm thinking particularly not just of Genesis 1:17, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them, so that the binary is actually something that the creator deemed good, and a sexual alterity was given to our species in its very beginnings, but that in fact, it's not just that some are men and some are women, but that there's actually, now we get a little bit to the purpose. Even in the origins, there is purposefulness in that sexual alterity. And I think you get this, you can extrapolate this from Genesis 2.18 and 2.20, where Adam is before the creation of Eve, naming the animals. And twice it says that there was no helper corresponding mm-hmm. to him. And I think uh, among other things, the question is, what is this correspondence that is lacking to Adam? And in particular, what's lacking to Adam is the ability to, as a living thing, participate in generativity, if I can put it like that, that he cannot generate the species. He cannot be fruitful and multiply. As he looks at the plants and the animals, each, especially with the animals, uh, with their pairs, they are able to generate and fruitfully multiply upon the earth. And there is no one corresponding to Adam so that the alterity itself has a generativity orientation in it. And I put like, in other words, non-sterile, that it's not just you're a man, you're a woman, but that there's an orientation of maleness and of femaleness that is toward generativity. Um, And I think there are, you know, you can take, you can take vows of celibacy and live a life that is fruitful in other ways and in spiritual things that might um, lead one to forego the natural generativity of male, female um, that are biblically warranted. I'm thinking particularly of like 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul commends singleness because it allows us to be fruitful in spiritual things. But absent that, (laughs) absent that condition, there's a normal orientation of human sexuality toward generativity. If we make decisions about our bodies that sterilize us, uh, so to speak, um, transgenderism and the and particularly manipulation of the body or homosexuality are both ways of treating sexuality in a sterilizing, non-generative way. And I think that cuts against the purpose given by the creator at the beginning and given to each of us in our own in our own sexual givenness as men and women. There's something else going on, though, too, which is even in the context of Paul's discussion of his own um, unmarried state in 1 Corinthians 7, he wasn't in any way um, in that context saying that he was no longer uh, a male and that and that that no longer had significance, even for his ministry. And we can see that played out in the way in which he ministers, qualifications he gives for certain kinds of ministry and, and, and leadership within the church. And I think that's a reminder as well that uh, that gender identity, if we want to use the language that's being used today, isn't, um, it, it's, it's never individual. There, there, there is this fruitfulness that you described, but there are also specific roles that our gender gives to us. So I'm a son and therefore not a daughter. I'm a father, therefore not a mother. 
a husband, therefore not a wife. And so that's another dimension of this as well. You, you, you spoke about the, the created purpose, uh, which is clear in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and, and extends into the whole of Scripture. But, but there are also these specific roles that are gender, as it were, gives to us, and then others that it withholds from us. There, I wonder if, especially with the sort of very recent obsession with gender identity, what is what is significantly lacking from the discussion is the ways in which our personal identity is a socially situated identity in which there are obligations, relational obligations that, and not just obligations, obligations because you really are a son, because you really are a husband, uh, a brother, a father, there's a whole network of relations. And in that case, even with regard to your wife and children, a, a generative type relation, that whatever is going on in your mind, you have an obligation given to you in a set of relations that is very much determined by your biological um, sexuality. And so I think that to treat gender identity as if it's about nothing except the psychological condition or feeling or mood of the individual, what do you think you are deep in your heart of hearts? How do you identify? There's a certain sense in which our identity isn't something we create for ourselves. It's something that's given to us. And it's something that's given to us in a network of relationships to other persons who have certain... Um, things they need from us that are carried out according to the reality of our sexuality. So what happens when you decide to change that identity? Do your children lose their father? Does your wife lose her husband? Ordinarily, I think we can just look at this socially and say, yes, that is the, re the result of it is a normal father-child relationship is lost when a, when a male decides that he is no longer a male. There's a certain nurturing relationship um, with a male or female toward their offspring that is damaged by sort of self-identifying as something else. That's just, that's just one example. So I'm just wondering, what are the social obligations to other persons that are relative to our gender and sexuality that are sort of being discarded in the hyper-individualism of the transgender movement? And let me, let me put that in, in, a, in a concrete way. It is a fifth commandment issue because in the fifth commandment, we're commanded to honor our father and our mother. And it's a 10th commandment issue because we're commanded not to covet. And I know there's more going on than this, but there's not less going on than this in terms of coveting something that is not yours, in this case, namely a certain role or or, or whatever, or identity, and and dishonoring the, the set of family obligations and societal obligations that the Lord has placed upon you um, in your in your state, because to me it's irreducible that those things are violated grossly when one goes down this path. And of course, that's the last thing in the world that our culture at large wants us to consider. Um, it, we're we're told to consider simply our own personal feelings and how we we think we should fit in and manifest ourselves physically. But that's never the sum total of life. And the Bible makes that crystal clear in our obligations to our 
to our family and and our and our obligation to not covet that which is not ours. That's an interesting way of putting it. I'm not sure that I've thought about it in terms of coveting what hasn't been given to you by God, but it is. It, and often you'll hear it though when you hear the kind of the stories of it. You'll hear stories like this is a man, and he just he just wanted to have the experience of someone else holding the door open for him, and he coveted he coveted the natural treatment that men give toward women, and he wanted that treatment for himself, and so there was a covet there was a coveting a desiring of what is an ordinary treatment of women. He wanted that treatment for himself so much so that there's the you know what I'm saying that desire to be yeah. treated as the opposite sex. And I think you're right. That is, I think we do have to consider that that is a form of covetousness. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's superficial. I mean, it could be a very deep seated, you know, I really, I really wish I could be treated like um, someone I'm not. It's not like the whim of a child who's at the store and says, mommy, I want that daddy. Yeah. it, It could be, it could be so deep seated. And you also have the reinforcement from the culture. I want to go back to your early thing that you started with where you're encountering this among parents in the last like five years. But even both of us can think back to 10 years ago when we encountered no one having, um, I mean, this is now everywhere, but this was almost nowhere um, 10 years ago. And I think we have to ask the question, how much much cultural propaganda is lying behind this kind of perhaps dysphoric condition, mostly afflicting children, um, not as many middle-aged people, though those are the ones that the media highlights, but children are especially af- uh, affected by this, but that's because children are, children are, free, you know, I can remember looking at a Christian reformed, like children's catechism from the 1950s. And it was like complete with pictures. And there's this little picture of two little, two little boys and one's dressed in a suit and one's dressed in like a bride's gown, two little boys. And the question is, um, why can- it's a boy asking, why can't I marry Tommy? you know, like this. And the thing is, there were just really good, reasonable answers. And we could treat that as a, as a childish inquiry and not, not, not uh, mock them, but also at the same time, not say, well, you know, I don't really know why you can't marry Tommy. Maybe, maybe you want to marry Tommy because in your heart of hearts, you're really a girl. Never mind the fact that you are in every presenting way, uh, a healthy male. So I think so much of the cultural propaganda, the the gender bending, they used to say, um, now we're told that it's not gender bending, it's just gender identity, and we've got to affirm it every time someone identifies it. I think the other side of this, Jonathan, this goes back to the kind of the social situatedness of our sexuality, is that there's an, there's an alienation at several levels that takes place in the ideology of transgenderism. There's an alienation, obviously, of one's own mind and set of desires from one's own body. But then there is a, there's a series of alienations that take place both in, in the workplace, in how you use, you know, uh, bathroom usage, um, a husband, how can you continue to be a husband to your wife? If suddenly you decide that you are also a woman, um, how can you be a father to your children? How can you be a son to your parents in the ways that sons might have unique obligations to their parents that daughters don't or vice versa? How do you fulfill a natural obligation to the other humans around you? And the, I think the answer is you can't anymore. When you decide that what I am really, I'm not in my heart, you know, outwardly, I'm not in my heart of hearts. There is an alienation that results both internally from our own bodies, but also externally from the series of relationships that are contoured by that. 
Well, I think that's a great point. And I think that's why we see it in the age groups that we see it in, because they are quite naturally trying to understand their place in uh, in their family, in society, what, what their trajectory is. And those are unsettling times in, in anyone's life. They always have been. And, uh, and, and this sort of plays on that and says, well, the reason why you're actually unsettled is because you're at at war with reality in your deepest person. And, and you need to come out the winner in that war, which of course leads to disastrous um, consequences. There's one other observation I want to make. And I think it's just as, as Christians or even not as even those who might even hear this, who aren't Christians, who are just, who are living in the real world and they're realizing that this is somehow de- decoupled from reality uh, I think that it bears pointing out that it's not like transgenderism or or gender identity philosophy is a kind of self-referentially coherent system that should intellectually intimidate us. Um, even even recently in the in the interview of a um, candidate for the Supreme Court, the question was asked, "What is a woman?" And the the candidate said, "Who is a woman?" Uh, said, "I couldn't really answer that." And then the reason given was, "I'm not a biologist." But then, but then that really raises the question, then if only a biologist can answer the question, then how come we're allowing every non-biologist to self-identify? Aren't we really saying that no one, you can't say I'm a woman trapped in a man's body because then, or a man trapped in a woman's body, because then you're not equipped to say, like, who are you to say that what you've identified internally is the real you, because you're not a biologist or you're not a psychologist. And I think, I think that just kind of, it shined a light on the fact that her answer to the question, I can't say what a woman is also in unintentionally remove the ability of everyone to self-identify as well, which is to say, this is a, this is a self-referentially incoherent approach to reality. And the incoherencies show themselves routinely. And I think it it's fair for us who say that there are sexual givens and there are obligations that we have to the realities of our bodies and to the social situatedness of ourselves as male and female. We can, I think we should also observe that the alternative isn't a kind of philosophically or scientifically coherent or intellectually formidable position to take. And that, that should, even if you're having questions about how to navigate it or answer it, I think that should just give us a little pause to say, I don't have to be intellectually intimidated uh, by, the, by this alternative uh, that's being uh, promoted at the moment. No, you're right. But it's emotionally powerful in, in many people's lives. And also, um, it does have devastating real-world consequences. Um, well, in any case, we've gone beyond the time that we allotted to ourselves. Uh, but I think it required this kind of discussion. Actually, it requires even more discussion than we were able to give it. But as always, James, great chatting with you. Uh, for our listeners who are interested in hearing more about this topic, uh, two, several years ago, 2019, the Blue Ridge Bible Conference was hosted by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And the topic of that conference in that year was gender, sexuality, and what it means to be human. You can download that at theologyonthego.org, gender, sexuality, and what it means to be human from the Blue Ridge Bible Conference. There's a, there are a number of great addresses there, including one entitled Plastic People by Carl Truman that I think was particularly relevant to the discussion that James and I were having today. Thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
Reformation Heritage Books is a publisher and bookseller whose mission it is to equip the saints to serve Christ and His Church through biblical, experiential, and practical resources. Reformation Heritage Books reading material is God-glorifying and in accord with Scripture and historic Reformed creeds for the promotion and defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each book published or sold, whether from the Puritans or modern-day authors, subscribes to the three forms of unity, that is, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, as well as the Westminster Standards. To learn more and to browse the impressive inventory of available resources from trusted Reformed writers, visit heritagebooks.org.